Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest is a lawyer whose work has resulted in the exoneration of nearly 300 wrongfully convicted people. 288 to be exact. I should say 288 and counting since he's still at it. He is attorney Josh Tupfer and he's here with me today to talk about his fight for justice. Here I am with Josh. Welcome to the podcast, Josh Tupfer. I am so grateful that you're here today. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So you have exonerated almost 300 wrongfully convicted people. Talk to me about your criteria for taking a case. Like lots of people say, I don't belong in jail. I didn't do it. What strikes you as when you are reviewing a a file and you say, you know what, I have to get involved here? Kind of learned a long time ago that People aren't particularly good at distinguishing who's telling the truth and who's lying. I um, am no better or worse than anyone else. So I try to be cognizant of that. I have in some ways, you know, I, I, I certainly align myself with public defenders and criminal defense attorneys, but my job in some ways is unique that, you know, my I represent people who claim that they're innocent. So at the outset, people have to tell me that they're innocent and I kind of leave it at that. But then the bigger criteria is whether I can prove it. So is there evidence that is available now that wasn't previously for whatever reason, whether it was the fault of it being hidden, whether it was the fault of um, a trial attorney, a defense attorney, or whether it was a fault fault of no one at all, and it's just literally wasn't available because of science or some other reason or someone coming forward. that's really the criteria, if there's something that's powerful that can prove it. As my career has gone on a little bit more, I've taken a bit of a different approach, um, and it's not really a case-by-case determination as much. Now I've started thinking about repeat offenders, repeat people who victimize um, the innocent. You're talking um, about law enforcement uh, folks. Mm -hmm. When you find that there's been a law enforcement uh, officer who has engaged in improper or illegal behavior that has resulted in a conviction, then that person becomes the repeat offender who you focus on and you look at cases where they may have been involved. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit more of like an audit approach. I mean, what I've seen is over and over again, many of the same officers you know, who are corrupt officers, you know, they're not usually just corrupt once. They're usually corrupt for a series of time. And so when we develop evidence of this pattern of conduct, and especially when that pattern is sort of accepted by everyone in the system, law enforcement itself, courts, et cetera, like it made a lot of sense to me to start looking at this in a different way and being like, well, instead of just having individuals come to me and claim they're innocent and I investigate them one at a time, well, why don't we just figure out all the cases that these officers were involved in, and if those people have contacted us, they're probably telling the truth, because now there's independent evidence that these officers were repeatedly framing or you know, or engaging in misconduct on, on a wide scale. So I've sort of looked, started to look and examine cases in that way, which is a little bit unique in the network of innocence groups that I'm in. Tell us a little bit about Sergeant Ronald Watts and the 183 people who you ended up getting exonerated who were all tied to this particular sergeant. Tell us a little bit about that situation. Now disgraced former Chicago police sergeant Ronald Watts was a 
criminal. He was running a drug line for about 10 years off the backs of housing project residents, all African-American in uh, Chicago um, South Side. Um, this was known, very much known by certainly the citizens and the victims in the community that he was victimizing, um, but it was also known by the Chicago Police Department and very high up uh, throughout the system. But it was covered up, as is, uh, happens over and over and over again in city police departments. In 2012 or 13, he was finally arrested by the FBI after a eight to 10 year investigation. Um, he was arrested on one count and pled guilty and, and went to prison. I had never heard of Ronald Watts until two years after that. It was fairly low profile when I started representing a guy named Ben Baker. Uh, it came to me just like any other case. He said he was innocent in prison and I started looking into it and realized that Ben Baker testified in his case to Watts' corruption and then 10 years later, Ronald Watts went to prison for a very similar type of corruption. So I went back and sort of unpacked and figured out, well, was Ronald Watts doing it back in this time? Did he have help? Did, was his team? And, and 183 people later, we realized how widespread it was and, um, and have been able to help a lot of people. I read an article about you and you talked about the difference between a bad cop and a corrupt cop. What's the difference? I try to keep an open mind about people. And there are, I guess, bad cops who think they have the right person and will cut corners knowing they shouldn't or violate people's constitutional rights, engage in pretty much terrific conduct, but think they probably do it for a better good. I mean, that's a corrupt cop, but I guess I put it in a slightly different category than someone like Ronald Watts or Ronaldo Guevara, who seriously have, have no care what in the world who they lock up. And um, they are just locking people up for their own, well, their own, in Ronald Watts' case, financial interests or whatever else his motivation was, sociopathy, and, um, and don't even have a real idea of don't care one way or the other whether this person did it. Um, I guess that is a distinction maybe I'm drawing for no particularly good reason. You mentioned Detective Reynaldo Guevara. Tell us a little bit about that situation because that's another case where the misdeeds of one law enforcement officer kind of led to this family tree of unfairness and, and, and injustice. Uh, tell us about what happened there. The Ronald Watts campaign is something that I, at least from an attorney perspective, obviously the community was talking about it forever, but was something that sort of was born of, of our, our legal work in the last seven years. The Ronaldo Guevara situation, he was a homicide detective. So he was framing individuals just in the way I just described. He didn't care who it was or why it was for homicides and sending people away for a very, very, very long time. He was doing it through... Uh, fabricating police reports, coercing confessions, um, threatening witnesses, um, rigging lineups, hiding lineup reports. Watts was really just like focused on, he would just plant evidence on people and it was drug cases and gun cases and it would just move on. Ronaldo Guevara's were more complicated. And I never sort of envisioned a scenario where we would be able to 
litigate the pattern with Guevara where it would apply to a group of people because homicide cases are so complicated. They have actual, you know, they have human victims. And then there's other detectives and other people involved in, in throughout the whole process. But after years and years of litigating this successfully and winning these cases, um, we were finally able to convince Cook County State's attorneys, Kim Fox and her office, that Guevara's investigations, he is so corrupt, he takes the fifth, he refuses to answer any questions about any of his investigations now or defend them. They're so fraught that his involvement in in an investigation, or at least his uh, significant involvement in obtaining the evidence that used to convict is in, is, is in and of itself a due process violation at this point. So in August of this year, after literally years of litigation and winning in court over and over again, there has been an, was an agreement with the state's attorney's office on that, and many cases have um, resulted in exoneration since then. So it's, it's a bit of a different approach. Again, it's about it, it's about litigating the the conduct of the officer to a point where we can't trust the convictions, as opposed to just an agreement that all of these people are innocent. But either way, these people get out of prison. I believe they're innocent, and that's good enough for them. I think it's really interesting going back to the distinction you were drawing between bad police officers who are breaking the rules because they really think that they are putting someone bad behind bars, as opposed to this type of corruption where, you know, people just don't care. Uh, they're trying to make money, you know, they're trying to exert power, they really don't care who they are harming. Do you have more or less faith in the system of law enforcement than you did when you were growing up? I know a little bit about your upbringing. Um, you grew up, I think, in a what, a fairly tony part of Chicago. Do you trust the system more or less now than you used to? Look, I think every area of the world, every employer, every employment place has bad actors. There's going to be individuals who do bad things, whatever their motivation. I am unaware of any other employer or sort of area of society where people aren't interested in weeding out the bad actors. So I don't personally blame the bad actors themselves as much as I do the system that covers up for them. And we have seen over and over and over again, police departments, particularly in the city of Chicago, where I do most of my litigating, but really everywhere, that the instinct is to cover up as opposed to weed out, expose, and get those people out of there. So, you know, if a pilot was drunk all the time and everyone realized there was a pattern of this pilot being drunk, everyone would be like, get this pilot <laughs> out of the air before he kills some people or harms right. some people. Let's get him out of there. They wouldn't cover it up. If a doctor is committing purposeful malpractice, you know, you think that they're going to try to get them out of there. But in police departments, over and over and over again, the instinct is the exact opposite. And that's where my faith in the system has really, has really lost me. What's uh, interesting is that, you know, if you watch... <laughs> old TV shows like me. I love Perry Mason. So Perry Mason comes up with some exculpatory evidence and Hamilton Berger, the prosecutor, always wants to see it. And then he's like, thank you, Perry, for helping me do justice. You know, justice was done. How often does that happen? I mean, one, you know, the job of the criminal defense lawyer is to put the government 
through its paces. It's not necessarily, you know, to prove innocence. It is to force the government to carry its burden. Uh, that's how I see the criminal defense bar. Maybe you disagree. The job of the prosecutor is not just to collect convictions. The job of the prosecutor is to keep the community safe by uh, putting bad people behind bars and keeping the rest of us safe. So one might assume then that when you bring to a prosecutor exculpatory DNA evidence that says, hey, this person you've locked up is very, very likely innocent, how often does that prosecutor say, thank you so much, Josh, let's go right this wrong? How often does that scenario play out in the way that I've described? In the way that you describe pretty much never, but uh, with a big thank you and an apology, um, or very, very, very rarely. I will say my trust in your, I answered your question, my trust in the police department has gone way you know, south. You know, I think there is a general understanding in prosecutors' offices now that is growing that there is a real risk of wrongful convictions and a real openness to at least thinking about reexamining these convictions. But there is still a real instinct to explain away newly found exculpatory evidence. Um, I've had more cases than I wish to... Um, wish I did where I had precisely that exculpatory DNA evidence from a rape case and a rape victim. And all of a sudden there's a unindicted, you know, co-ejaculator theory, as they call it in our, our business, of someone else who, who was uh, just innocently responsible for the semen or sperm that was found in a rape kit. Um, and, and you have to fight those battles. Do I think it's always because of bad faith? No, I actually don't. I think there is just, there's an education component. There's not an understanding of the, how the evidence used to convict my client can be so flawed, whether it's an eyewitness identification, whether it's a confession, like, you know. Um, so there's, there's training and there's an education process to what I do with the other side. So I, I don't assume bad faith in the way I, way I do. And like I said, there are individuals who act in bad faith in the criminal justice system, Watts and Guevara and individuals like that. I, I still hope and think that that's, that's rare. I think so too. And I certainly hope, I, I certainly hope so. Um, before you go, Josh, can you, if you could change one thing about the criminal justice system, and that's a really big question because there are a number of things I know. I, you know, it's short-staffed. There aren't enough uh, lawyers to help all of the people who need it, certainly those without resources. But, you know, I'll, I'll change the question. If there were kind of a bucket of reforms that uh, you could pass by waving your magic wand? What would they be? What would they look like? I used to do a little bit of, a, of legislation or policy work and I found it pretty dissatisfying because in the end, the system is only as good as its actors. And so, you know, in my opinion, and you see statistics like eyewitness misidentifications are the number one cause of wrongful convictions. I don't think that's true. The number one cause of wrongful convictions are individuals who, who purposely cause wrongful convictions. That's the Guevara's, the Watts, the you know, prosecutors who cover it up or whoever covers it up. So I guess it's not a policy, but it would be some change in culture that motivated people to weed out these bad actors and 
you know, transparency is great. Everything in this day and age is recorded. So, like, anytime the police talk to anyone or are investigating, like, turn the recorders on so everyone can see what's going on and what happens. And there's no really dispute of what happens in, the, in these places. So, I mean, that, I think, would go real far in, in some respects. But in the end, I mean, if someone wants to commit a bad act and frame someone, they're going to find a way to do it. So it's really, it's as simple as, as an interest in, in getting those people out of the responsibility of solving crime. We should start treating the uh, bad and corrupt gatekeepers to our law enforcement system the way that one would treat a drunk pilot. Let's treat them like that. Josh Tupfer, thank you so much for being here. Mike, how you summarized that a lot. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast and also leave me a five-star rating. I hope you think I deserve it. I would love to hear from you and I'd love to hear your thoughts about the program. Thank you so much for being here and I'll see you next time.